This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. On Ask the AMPs, we take your toughest maintenance questions and attempt to uh, answer them. So if you have a question, please send it to podcasts at aopa.org. That's podcasts at aopa.org. And if you like the show, make sure to follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like to get on our email list for our our monthly newsletter and, and occasional interesting maintenance stories, the easiest way to do that is to pick up your smartphone and text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. And a little email bot will ask you for your name and email address and add you to our mailing list. Again, text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777 to put yourself on our list. So I was thinking the other day about how cool it is, the things that we know to do for troubleshooting that we didn't have or know about 10, 20 years ago. So true confessions, you know, I've been talking about how much oil my airplane uh, engine has been consuming. So it finally exceeded the threshold, the continental threshold. So I felt obligated to do the do something about it. So months ago, I tried replacing the intake valve guide seals. That made no change at all. The belly of the airplane is perfectly clean. I mean, like spotless clean. Uh, compressions are all good. So I'm going through various and sundry troubleshooting procedures. So I do a ring wash. Again, I did one a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago. So I did another ring wash and identified cylinder number two and number four as not passing any fluid whatsoever. So I was like, okay, am I going to replace the cylinders? Well, I just couldn't bring myself to replace the cylinders. So I pulled the cylinders, honed the cylinders went ahead and put on new pistons because it's easier to put on a new piston than it is to scrape Clean all the, the stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. And put in new piston pins because uh, they were stepped a little bit. Uh, and then just hone the cylinder and put it right back on with new rings. So the first flight was an hour. Well, I put in eight quarts, flew for an hour, flew another long trip, had it up to six and a half, so seven and a half hours, waited a week, Checked the oil and it was at seven quarts. All right. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. This morning, I was actually down in Tupelo doing some battlefield repair on a plane. And by the way, the folks at Tupelo are awesome. Bobby and Amanda took great care of us. And I came home with a, with a freshly picked peach that they insisted that I bring back. So anyway, thank you, Tupelo. And so I checked my oil this morning and it showed five quarts, but that's because I flew yesterday. So my engine, in about four days, I will check it again, and hopefully it'll still be six-something, maybe seven. So anyway, that, oil, that oil drains, what, out of the prop back in? or Everywhere. On 550s, yeah, and I think they're worse than 520s. I, I have no basis for that other than if I fly my airplane and wait an hour and check the oil, come back the next morning, it will have gained at least a half a quart. And if I come back a week later, it will have gained one to one and a half quarts. So I never run my engine ever just before changing the oil. That's like the worst thing to do because you leave at least a quart of oil up inside the engine. So, yeah, 
Anyway, I let it sit so all that oil drains down. So the first time, after, if it's been sitting for a week and then you run it again, you don't want to do uh, cycle the prop pretty too quickly because you won't have a lot of oil in there because it's... Well, my airplane, I can't, I can't really cycle the prop in the traditional sense because it's a Cirrus, so it's all in that connector. I mean, it, you can tell that the prop is moving. You know that it's working, but it doesn't cycle in the same way that you would cycle your prop. But it doesn't really drain down from the propeller. It's just all over the engine. Anyway, and that's a common thing on the, on the Columbia's and the Cirrus as well, that a lot of oil hangs up inside the engine. So anyway, I was just pretty excited because five years ago, would never have thought to use the ring wash as a troubleshooting tool to find just the two cylinders. It would have been, well, I would have done that horrible thing that I tell everybody not to do and, you know, done a, pull them all, done a top, a top quote overhaul. So it's so nice to have a tool to be targeted. You couldn't see maybe which cylinder it was from some scuffing um, from the rings on the cylinder walls? No, the cylinder walls all look fine. It still has 2,300 hours, still has cross hatching. It's not great cross hatching, but it's still there. But when the rings stick, or is that sticking? When they when it won't pass fluid, they're too tight, or they're um, well, yes. It's just so everything's the, plugged up with yeah. Sludge. They don't yeah. start scraping the side of the cylinder. Eventually. Well, it depends on where it sticks. So you know, you, the oil ring mine happened to just kind of be centered, so the piston didn't slide off to one side or the other. So I didn't see any scraping on the cylinder walls. It all looked very normal all the way around. And when I took the piston out, sure enough, now on the bottom side of the piston, you can still see the holes. I've seen them before where because of the oil spray for cooling on the bottom of the piston, it'll actually coat over on the bottom. So you and, lose cooling, yeah. Yeah, you well, yeah, you lose cooling, but mostly you still plug up the four holes where the oil returns. But on mine this time, it was in the in the groove. I had this happen in an extreme situation in my Cardinal where it got stuck so much that the piston ring actually broke. Yeah. Okay. So you obviously weren't that far and the ring wash procedure tries to loosen those things up so you don't get to that case. Well, we thought that early on when we started doing those. And and I guess sometimes that works. I've never had that work. What it does though is identify which cylinder is not allowing the oil return to the sump. So it's the one that's burning the oil it scrapes it off the cylinder walls and then burns it instead of scraping it off and returning it to the sump through the holes in the piston. So it's a diagnostic procedure, so, yeah. but it's not a uh, what, well, therapeutic. It's, it doesn't fix things. It, 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 can. it can. It can be a therapeutic procedure if you do it early enough. Paul, did your Cirrus burn a lot of oil from from the time that you, that, that you first bought it? Well, it was running... Um, probably a quart in four or five hours, which to me is completely acceptable. Uh, and so I didn't take any action at all. And did the previous owner run it on like 15W50 or something? I don't know. Uh, well, I could go look through the records, but I haven't paid any attention to it. So I'm running a combination, depending on how I feel, with either W100 or Phillips 20W50. Yeah, because the IO550N is particularly vulnerable to this problem because it's a large displacement engine with a pathetically small oil sump. So, you know, I think there might be a good argument on that engine, both for shortening the oil change interval a little bit from the, the 50 hours that, we're, that we are usually used to, and also maybe doing the ring wash prophylactically every Let's say 500 hours yeah. or something like that to, to try to prevent it from building up to the point where you can't clear it. Our first question is from Tony, who wants his new engines to behave. Go ahead, Tony. Hey, guys, thanks for taking my questions. I own a Turbo Twin Comanche, so that's Lycoming IO320s with the Ray J Turbo. Both engines are about 300 cents major by a major shop. I purchased the plane about two years ago with the overall recently done about 30 hours since major. So I've had it for about 300 hours, a couple of years. Um, I'm having 
engine issues and they happened to both engines at the same time. So I'm suspecting something wasn't set up correctly after the overhaul and nobody seems to be able to figure it out. So the first issue on takeoff at sea level, I only seem to get about 14 gallons per hour for the fuel flow on both engines. Per Mike's math and all the studying I've done, he says 160 horse engine needs about 16 gallons on takeoff, which is coincidentally redline. So CHTs climb rapidly and it takes a pretty significant power reduction to keep them from climbing through 430. Just as a note, I do have aftermarket nose bowls, a little bit of knots, but a little bit of reduced airflow. The second engine or the second issue, and I think again, these might be related, is when the engines are hot on the ground, so after landing usually, especially with a high outside temperature or a higher density altitude, I am in Colorado, the engines have a hard time idling. So anytime below about 1200 RPM, both engines will surge up to about 400 RPM. And if I don't catch it, I've had the engines die on me a couple times. Idling when the engines are cold works great. And if I turn the electric fuel pumps on, the engines idle fine. I talked to Lycoming Tech Support. They say the idling issue sounds like a vapor lock problem. I kind of agree with that. Kind of my question is, is are my are the fuel pressure set too low on my mechanical fuel pumps? Or is that a fix that potentially address both of these issues? Appreciate your knowledge. First off, really cool that you have a twin Comanche. So mine didn't have the, the turbos. And for those that are listening, these are mechanical turbos. So when the as you're climbing out, you get to an altitude where the throttles are full forward. Then you start cranking in or closing the wastegates with a second set, basically a second set of throttles, right? Kind of sitting down in the center console. So when those are all the way backed out, they're basically not in play at all. You just have a normally aspirated engine. But you do have rotary fuel pumps as opposed to the normally aspirated Twin Comanche has the little poppet pumps. I was trying to think of what in the world in a Twin Comanche would be common to both engines. And they're they're totally isolated systems. The fuel systems are isolated. I mean, unless you're on crossfeed, your ignition systems are isolated. The only thing that's odd is the engine-driven fuel pumps. But he's suspecting it's something. They were both overhauled at the same time. Correct. The same organization, so he thinks they did something wrong to both engines. Yes, well, I'm sure it is. I, so I was I was going back into the aircraft systems, and I can't come up with anything that is tied together where we could say this is an airplane or an airframe or a system issue. I guess it's remotely possible that someone may have connected the fuel supply forward of the firewall, strangely, but that doesn't, I've never heard of that before. Um, How do you adjust fuel pressure on a Lycoming? You can't. You You don't, yeah. There's no adjustment on the pump and there's no adjustment on the fuel servo. It's an RSA-5. Oh, it could be wrong pump? But my my recollection, and and you can see this by going to the... uh, the type certificate data sheet, but my, my recollection is that those fuel servos don't care a whole lot about fuel pressure. They have a very wide, acceptable they band do. Of, of, of fuel pressure. So when he turns on the, un, unlike a Continental, when he turns on the fuel pump, normally that would have zero effect on how the engine ran because the fuel servo absorbs that. It acts as a regulator. So turning on the fuel pump, correcting turning on the electric fuel pump, uh, if that makes a change, you either have a fuel servo issue or an electric, or not electric, but an engine-driven pump issue such that it's inhibiting fuel flow to the servo. I think I said well, the, that right. The, the idling issue certainly could, could be a vapor lock issue, particularly if it goes away when you turn on the boost pump. Andy, do you, is, do you use the boost pump for takeoff and climb, or is it off for takeoff and climb? I use the electric boost pumps are on for takeoff and climb. Okay, and you're still getting you're still getting insufficient fuel flow. Correct. Could he again? Is fourteen is fourteen enough? No, 
But yeah. I don't think so. I think you're right. It, 16 is it, more like it. Yeah, 16 is more like it. It should run fine on 14, though. I mean, it's only a 160-horse engine. It's a well, skyhawk. It's going to run hot. Well, that's true. I'm just saying. Uh, I mean, that, that's the complaint, is that... Yeah. He can't adjust fuel flow or fuel pressure, but could he change the injectors to allow more flow, or is that not? Yeah, I mean, it just has one part number injector. There's not like a selection of injectors. He could go with gammies. Gammies, yeah. You could he get could gammies, gammies that, but... that you can widen the, the orifice. Right? Yeah, I, I, I don't think it works that way with, no. the, with the RSA system. And And even still, that's masking the problem. They should run with what they have. Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, the unfortunate part about the RSA system is that, that, that it doesn't it doesn't have any adjustments other, other than idle mixture. If it was a continental system, you can, you know, you can turn up the fuel flow, but, but with the RSA system, all you can do is send the servo in to be put on the bench and, and flow tested. I think the, the servos are in question and the engine-driven fuel pump is in question because the electric pump may be forcing fuel through the engine-driven pump. Maybe the engine, because they're rotary pumps. If there's something not right in there, then it's not allowing proper flow. That's just the first thing that comes to mind. That but Tony, do you have a you have a fuel pressure gauge on the panel? I have a fuel flow gauge, mechanical as well as the JPI eight thirty. Oh, so you do have a fuel pressure gauge. That's, I mean, fuel flow. Yeah, but it's a pressure gauge. It is, It's yes. actually a pressure gauge. Yeah. How do they compare? They're spot, about spot on. Oh. <laughs> I was so excited. <laughs> okay, but that, that's, not, that's not the kind of fuel pressure gauge I was thinking about. I mean, a, a, a lot of homing installations will have a fuel pressure gauge that shows what the fuel pressure coming into the servo is. So, so it basically is measuring the fuel pressure that's coming out of the engine-driven pump. But you don't you, you don't have that instrumented. So, would, would there be any evidence in the idle mixture rise at fuel cutoff that would indicate that he's excessively lean, or is that Tried that, so we enrich in the idle the idle adjustment. Oh, okay. I thought that might help, but it didn't. So without the electric pump on, do you get an idle rise? I do. How, 50, 25 RPM? It's about like 50 to 75. I think I might lean it out a couple yeah. here yeah. next time I got the cows off. But Yeah. Yeah, but that adjustment, that, that idle mixture adjustment on the RSA servo doesn't, doesn't affect a full power fuel flow. Right. It's more likely that the servos were were set up wrong. Well, one thing you could do is pull one and send it out. <laughs> yeah. And see if it makes a difference um, and, before you do both. And send it to a different shop. Oh. Well, and here's why I say that: if if something's going on at the shop, a new tech or something wrong with their equipment, and maybe it's not wrong. Maybe there's some sort of procedural, something that's different. If we're not talking about a warranty concern, if you send it to a different shop and you can tell them it has a short amount of time and describe the issue and just have them test it first. Sometimes that makes all the difference. We have, uh, we've had many times where we have sent components back to the same shop and you go round and round, you keep getting the same component back. The problem doesn't go away. You know the problem is in that component. So you replace it with a different component. And now you absolutely know it's in that component. And so overhauling it doesn't fix it. Something is getting missed in the overhaul. Can't explain what it is. So just put a different box on it. And that happens with fuel system components and magnetos. At least that's been my experience. Paul, those those RSA servos, they come with like a whole bunch of different dash numbers depending on so I'm, I'm wondering whether there's, there's some chance that the overhaul shop put on the wrong dash number servos well it could be uh, but usually the dash number if it's an RSA 5A for instance and the airplane was originally delivered with one with no dashes back in 19 
60 something. What year is this? 66. 66. Oh, yeah, early one. And then in 1976, they send it off for overhaul again. It becomes a Dash 5 because that's the iteration. And a Dash 12 is still the same basic unit, but it has new components. So normally that's how it works. Now, I, I could be wrong. Maybe it from Dash 8 to Dash 10, it's actually a different unit. But generally speaking, the Dash number is just the latest iteration of that same basic number, and you can put it on. But that's certainly worth checking. Who knows, there may be some bulletin that came out on the Dash 12, and you know, now they have a Dash 13, and you're good to go. I'm sure the overhaul yeah. shop will tell them that. Yeah. They'll want all the service bulletins. That, so if you send it in for IRAN, they'll they'll recommend all the service bulletins be complied with. And, you know, may get them done. Be good. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But at this point, any change is probably a good change. Right. Okay, I'll try one, and we'll... Uh... We'll see. Oh, Thank you. Good, good luck. Let us know how it works out. Welcome. Yep. Our next question is from Andy, who thinks this shop is all wet. How are you doing, Andy? Good. I'm dry. You're dry. Okay. You're not in Vermont, obviously. Yeah. Where, where are you calling from? I'm across the river in New Hampshire. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Oh, gosh. That's okay. equally no. wet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we we got wet, yeah. Anywhere near Dartmouth? Or? Yeah, are you near Dartmouth? <laughs> yes, I'm about 20 miles from there. Oh, very good. Mike and I are both so, alums yeah. from Dartmouth. Oh, okay. Go green. <laughs> Go green. <laughs> okay, well, we love your question. Why don't you give us a condensed version um, and we'll tackle it. Sure. I took my airplane into the shop. They did an annual on it, and it was never washed. And I asked, I said, aren't you supposed to wash the airplane as part of performing an annual? And they're like, oh, nobody does that anymore. We just look at the skin, and, you know, if there's a big gobber of grease, we'll wipe it off or something like that. But, you know, and uh, it, it made me wonder, okay, well, what else in um, Appendix D of the FAR 43 are people – deciding not to do anymore. And, and I guess I was just curious, is like, is the FAA okay with that? Or are they just so understaffed now that they're just not even thinking <laughs> about it? Well, first off, it's so impressive that you know about 43 Appendix D. That's pretty awesome. And you cited it. Yeah. And you uh, it's cited an antique it. airplane, so that's all we have to go with. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's actually the first line in the minimum scope and detail of an annual as you watch the airplane. Which I will admit, as a shop, we usually wash the airplane last. We will clean areas for the purpose of inspecting. If something's covered up, if the belly is covered in grease uh, or engine oil, we can't see it, then we definitely will degrease it. Another thing that's not included, just for grins and giggles, is inside. When they say wash, it doesn't define wash. So the assumption is we're just washing the outside, soap and water and a brush, no big deal break off the transponder antenna with the brush, you know, all that stuff that usually happens. But inside the belly, you have all this oil and grease that's like a quarter of an inch thick. That is not part of washing, but does have to be cleaned. And so, the, and that can take like four hours. So that's an additional thing to the scope and detail of an annual. That's don't expect a shop to spend four hours degreasing the inside of the belly of the airplane for free. That's a good job for an owner. Yeah, which you get one of these long screwdrivers and a bunch of rags and you get the screwdriver in among the hoses and just lop up all that grease and clean up all the dirt that falls through the cracks and the yep. cookie crumbs and everything that gets... <laughs> the Fritos. Yeah, I've never seen a shop do that. <laughs> I, I spend a lot of time doing that at each annual. Yeah. Because it adds up. Um, for, first of all, I, I, I don't have it in front of me, but I don't recall... Part 43 Appendix D saying anything about washing. I think it says cleaning, doesn't it? Well, um, no, it I think thoroughly, it says wash. It says thoroughly, I'm reading what he cited here. It says thoroughly clean the aircraft oh, okay. engine yes. and the aircraft clean. Now, my, my understanding of that, which may differ from yours, what was that when they talk about cleaning, it's it's cleaning that facilitates the inspection. And in fact, probably most of the time you don't want to just 
willy-nilly clean the airplane before you start the inspection because you want to be able to see what's leaking and you want to be able to see smoking rivets and all sorts of things. So you kind of want to inspect it moderately dirty, but not so dirty that you can't see stuff. It's kind of a fine line. But the other real spoiler alert is is that, and, and I, I, I still want to research this a little bit further because I, I want to actually call the FAA oh. <laughs> Office of Chief Counsel on this. <laughs> but but based on a on a conversation that we had with with an aviation attorney recently we believe that part 43 appendix d is not regulatory oh it's cuz it's an appendix well it's it not because it's in an appendix but because the appendix never went through the notice and comment procedure that is required for all regulations by by the Administrative Procedures Act. And this lawyer went back to the history of when these appendices were first introduced to Part 43 and made made a pretty strong argument that they are are non-regulatory, which is apparently a dirty little secret that nobody that the FAA doesn't want us to know. So I, it would be, I think, a little difficult to, to violate somebody based on noncompliance with Part 43, Appendix D. Where, again, I, I, I want to I talk to one of the reg lawyers in the FAA before I take this to the bank, but, but it, it sounded like a pretty convincing argument that this lawyer was making. So, Paul, going back to your practices as a shop, mm-hmm. so if I bring my airplane to your shop, do I expect to get the white glove treatment that I would get at, say, the dealership with my Buick, where they're no. going to put the mats down and they're going to clean everything before they hand it back to me? And it's Well, so we will clean reasonable. I mean, we're going to wash the airplane. As Mike says, we're going to do it at the end because we want to see all the streamers, and all that, we're going to degrease the belly because we have to inspect it. But if it's more than that, then we're going to, we're going to, you got a quarter inch of goo in the belly of your airplane. So we're going to write that up as a discrepancy. And we're going to tell you, this is above the norm. That's not part of a flat rate annual. And it's going to take several hours. You can come as the owner. We would welcome you to come and clean that because we don't want to do it. We would rather you do it than charge you four hours to do it, honestly. And part of that is that your your the drain holes in the belly are probably clogged up. And, you know, once they clog up, it just gets worse. So, yes, it has to be cleaned. We can't finish the inspection before it's cleaned. But who cleans it, that's a different thing. It is interesting in this, when you look at Appendix D, some time ago, the, we had a big discussion and FAA legal got involved about Appendix A and whether defining preventive maintenance in Appendix A was an exhaustive list or whether it was a representative list. And they said, well, it's a representative list. So when Mike was telling me a couple of weeks ago or whatever about Appendix D or the appendices to 43, not being possibly not being regulatory, then it suddenly made perfect sense that FAA legal would say, oh, well, Appendix A is representative as opposed to exhaustive. And anyway, so it's really cool. I don't know how that's going to play out, but Andy, for your annual inspection, you can use any list for the annual inspection that you want to. The FAA just says it has to meet the minimum scope and detail in Appendix D. So if you choose a list that says something differently about washing or cleaning, as long as it meets the intent of this list, I think you're you're fine. But for a shop, just say, oh, we don't we don't do that anymore. Nobody does that anymore. That would be wrong because that is not true. Now, we may not get the white glove treatment. We're not going to polish the airplane. You know, we're not going to do that sort of thing, but we are going to clean it. Absolutely. It has to be cleaned for the inspection. 
That includes, we even, we have to clean the inside of the cowlings as well. And the engine. Yeah. And the engine. Yeah. yeah. After an oil change, I clean my engine for, for an inspection. Sure. But what, what's clean to one person is not necessarily clean to another person. That's a. Yeah. As long as it's clean enough to the inspector. Right. And again, I, I would contend that, that the, the purpose of cleaning is to facilitate the inspection, not to make the airplane look pretty or smell nice. Right. Yeah. Although a little Febreze in there. Years ago, there was a, a fella, he always said he was an A&E mechanic. That's how old he was. But he always said, oh. always wash an airplane before you buy it. Because by washing it, you are basically examining every square inch of skin or mm -hmm. fabric or whatever, every rivet. And if you don't wash it, then you really haven't looked at it that carefully. Yeah, and so, that's true. You know, well, I'm, I'm going from that advice from a long time ago to today. And I'm thinking like, well, what, what happened? <laughs> yeah. So, well, if you're getting, if you, if you're getting a pre-buy done, don't let them wash it. You, you want to see it dirty. Absolutely. You want to see where those loose rivets have the, uh, aluminum oxide streamers going, you know, under the wing spar rivets and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's always better to have a dirty airplane for a pre-buy. But, you know, Andy, along the yeah. lines of what you're saying, I try after every flight to take a rag and a bucket of water and clean the bugs off the plane because it affords oh, sure. you a great opportunity to do a post-flight inspection. And it's amazing the stuff you find. <laughs> yeah. So it's a good practice yeah, to do. The fresh sure. ones come off easier, too. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And I hate flying a dirty airplane. So, well, um, great, great question. Well, and I didn't know they washed airplanes when they did an annual inspection. So I guess I need to step up my, my act. Step up your game there, Colleen. <laughs> they don't wash them. They clean them. Clean them. Let's be careful. And I, I want to say my airplanes are clean enough to eat off of. Just just laying that out there for okay. an invitation. All if right. anybody wants to have lunch on my uh, upper <laughs> feel free. <laughs> Thank, thank yeah. you for the question, Andy. It was yeah. a good one. You're welcome. Thanks, Andy. All right. Bye -bye. See ya. Our next question is from Matt. He has a question about a 210. Finally, I'm supposed to know something about. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> welcome, Matt. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. About a year ago, I had my uh, 182 Cessna Turbo 210 engine rebuilt. That's a ISO 520R, I know you know right. that. Uh, this is my third engine, and my wife and I have owned the plane for over 12 years, so we have a fair bit of experience with the plane. Wow. Wait, th how many engines in 12 years? Three. So wow. The original one, and then the second one, which we hope to keep forever, was a factory remanufactured engine that had a mismanufactured valve lifter hardened incorrectly and ground through the camshaft, but that's a different oh, story. Oh, oh, okay. Our, right. our new engine is truly the smoothest running engine we've had. Awesome. It has a peculiar okay. behavior when leaning uh, the engine. We fly rich at peak, and in place of the limits being our cylinder head temperatures, we've always kind of leaned and tried to keep our cylinder head temperatures below 375, maybe up to 380 at the most. Where we hit a maximum is our turbo inlet temperature of 1650 and we tend to fly the plane with our TIT around you know 1500 or, or 1525 you know below the red line uh, but our cylinder head temperatures will be in the mid 300s and we hit our turbo inlet temperature uh, max really quickly I was just watching my wife take off yesterday and it hit 1600 before she could even pull back the power on on takeoff so is this common and uh, is there any Thing we can do to bring that temperature down so we can more aggressively lean and save fuel at this time we're burning about two gallons an hour more than than the book uh fuel flows i've asked a bunch of a and p's this question as well as the shop that rebuilt my engine and so far i've gotten crickets so i'm hoping the three of you have an opinion on my question you're not going to get crickets from us guaranteed no guaranteed yeah yeah First and we of all, have lots of opinions your red line should be 1650, correct? Yeah, uh, 1650. Yeah, my JPI uh, 930 turns red at 1600, but the red line, okay. I believe, is 1650. Yeah. So a couple of things. First of all, 
it's important to understand that if you go over TIT Redline, the turbocharger doesn't like turn into a pumpkin. It's perfectly acceptable to go over Redline. As long as you're only over Redline for seconds or minutes and not for hours. The purpose of the Redline is to protect the turbine wheel from getting so hot that the blades start to creep due to centrifugal force. But brief periods of time over redline are perfectly okay. And in fact, if you're operating the engine lean a peak, you're almost always going to go over redline during the transition from richer peak to lean a peak. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I hear a lot of people say, well, I can't run lean a peak because I hit redline. Well, that's not a problem. You, you just keep leaning and, and the TIT will go up and up and up and eventually it'll start coming down and down and down. And as long as where you end up is below redline, uh, you're fine. A second thing is that if your TITs are higher than, than what you remember from the, from the other engine, probably a good chance that your mag timing is off. The, the way mag timing works is if the if the timing is too advanced, it increases CHT and decreases EGT and TIT. And if it's retarded, it's the other way around. You get you get low cylinder head temperatures, but high exhaust gas temperatures and TIT. So you're describing a situation where you have high TITs and low cylinder head temperatures which kind of screams out to me that, that the mag timing is, is, is too retarded. But, and, and the fact that he has a T210, which I, unless you have one of the 550 conversions, I never hear a customer say, oh, my CHTs are low. I have no trouble keeping them below 380. So you, you've got two really good cues here that your mag timing is in question. Hmm. Actually, I just got it out of annual, and that—that's the best way to, <laughs> to be to be mistimed. Yep. And and my mechanic used one of those old flower pot things. <laughs> Maybe uh, they they did mention that the mag timing was uh, a little bit off. They retimed it, and uh, we're still yeah. having the same uh, same high TITs. But it sounds like I shouldn't sweat this. No, you should probably get the mag timing adjusted. Yeah, I, I would have. So maybe get, I would, maybe get somebody else to adjust it than the guy yeah, who adjusted it before. Someone that has a digital protractor or a digital inclinometer, not the old flower pot. But you yeah, don't to, know that they did have a flower to, pot. To me, to me, the most idiot proof. Well, no, that's not true. This is a T two ten, so it, it's it's not a permal, so you can't use the timing marks on the ring gear. Belay, belay my comment. Sorry. Yeah, he's he's got to use, doesn't have to use, but the best method is to use Continental's method where you use the plug in one of the cylinders, rotate it up till it contacts it, note the angle, circulate it all the way around backwards yeah. till it contacts again, calculate halfway through that. It, I won't try to explain it anyway. And use a digital inclinometer. Use a digital inclinometer. And tell them you want it timed within, oh, 0.2 degrees on each mag. And it's doable. But Would you recommend he go to another shop just to kind of, and then? Yeah, I think I would. Not, not because you don't trust the first shop, but just to get a different set of eyes and to see. Because sometimes a mechanic may have part of the process that just gets missed a little bit or they don't do the same thing wrong twice. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and in most cases it doesn't make any difference, but in your case, maybe it makes a difference. A couple degrees might make a difference or definitely oh, would make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Two degrees would make a huge difference. The good absolutely. news is that checking the timing is a very non-invasive, very simple, short, quick thing to do. So. Yeah. Fantastic. The worst thing is taking the cowl off, but only the upper cowl comes off, so that helps. Well, and on a 210, that's two upper cowls. Oh, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> two? <laughs> yeah, two, left and a right. Okay, well, that's great advice. So digital inclinometer within 0.2 degrees could be the timing of the mag, and then also I don't need to worry about 
uh, going into the red on my TIT if it's for brief yeah. periods. Yep. So, and, and when you're getting this high TIT, just out of curiosity, is this on the initial climb or the extended climb? When when are you seeing this high TIT? Well, we always get a high TIT on the uh, takeoff and the initial climb. And then as I get into cruise and I we're, either one of us are starting to lean the engine, our cylinders on this engine kind of sit in the 350, 360 temperature range. Uh, and our TIT will go up to 1600, and that's when we stop leaning, again, running rich. Yeah, so the norm on a T210 or a P210 in climb, and uh, where are you located? Uh, we fly between California and Washington. So you're taking off at lower lower altitudes, close to sea level, yeah. The typical, and this is how I recommend people take off and climb, is everything forward for the initial climb, when you're away from the airport, you know, out of the pattern and you have time to muck around, you can back the RPM down to top of the green. Uh, on the older engines, you had to back it down to at least 2,600, but back it down to 2,500, Throttle still wide open and mixture still full rich and climb it like that all the way up. It'll do beautifully. You can climb it six to 800 feet a minute and your CHTs will stay around 380, 390, uh, but you can climb pretty quick up to at least 10,000. And your, uh, but your EGTs and TITs should not be at redline when doing that. So, so the whole climb is full rich, Paul. Really? Sure. Yeah. Because you can climb fast. Yeah. It's a turbo. Yeah, this turbo, is a turbo. Turbo always thinks it's at sea level, regardless of what yeah. altitude it's at. So you don't have so, to lean in the climb. Yeah, so rock on, and it'll it'll do just great. It does really well. And of course, cow flaps open, and then when you get to cruise, set it up any way you want. But you just back the RPM off a little bit. Don't pull the throttle back and climb at seventy five percent and stuff like that, because that will definitely start heating things up. CHTs, not TITs. Interesting. Well, we'll try that next time we're out flying. Yeah, yeah. Your, your engine uses conventional magnetos rather than a an electronic ignition system. Okay. Good. Thank you, you got the two ten expert here. So. Yeah. Thank you very much. Really appreciate the uh, the comments and advice. Yeah. Well, let us know how it works out. All right. I will. Thank you. Right. Thanks, you. Matt. See you, Matt. All right. Bye. Our next question is from Nathan, who wants to stop the starting madness. <laughs> Go ahead, Nathan. <laughs> I, I first of all I appreciate you guys having me on. It's a, it's a thrill to talk to all three of you. And if you've noticed a bump in your subscribers, it's because I'm telling everybody about your show. <laughs> oh, <that's great. laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but I, I love it. So I have found that there. I'm a I'm a, a flight instructor in the Atlanta area, and I do a lot of checkouts in our flying club and. It seems like everybody has a different way to start just a plain vanilla 0360 or 0320. And I just want to kind of get to, I want to hear what Mike, Colleen, and Paul say, this is how you start it. I see things like pumping the throttle 20 times and, you know, <laughs> while we're starting or before or priming while we're starting. I, 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 I don't know. So I would love to hear what you guys think about how can I help spread the message on just how to start a plain vanilla well, what's, what's your favorite way? Engine. I mean, what what works for you? I I, I was always taught, and I teach, and um, I use the primer when it's necessary. I don't. I feel like that's the best way to do it that I know, but maybe that's not right. And I've read the, the guidance on the Lycoming website on how to start their engines, and you know, there's some mention there about the accelerator pump or pumping during um, starting, but. Is there a risk for a fire? What, what are people doing that are, you know, that I can maybe help spread a better message? So I would love to hear your thoughts on any of that. So you're talking primarily about 172s, Cherokees, that sort. Carbureted. So carbureted small, light, small carbureted Lycoming yeah. engines. Well, I, I have sort of two generic comments about this. First of all, priming with the accelerator pump, in other words, pumping the throttle, puts the fuel in the wrong place whereas priming with the primer puts the fuel in, in the right place. It puts it closer to the intake ports of the cylinder. The, the second comment is that 
if it is possible, and I say this because in some airplanes it requires like three or four hands, but it, 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 at least in theory, it's better to prime while you're cranking the engine rather than to prime first and crank second. Because if you prime first and crank second, the, the, the fuel is likely to, to run downhill and puddle up and again create a potential fire hazard. Whereas if you prime while you're cranking the engine, the the engine is 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 sucking this this fuel in into where where it can actually do some good. Uh, again, some airplanes it's very hard to prime while cranking because it requires more hands than the pilot has. Uh, but if it's if it's feasible to do it, it's 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 a better way to do it. So something to follow up on that. Oftentimes, the primer pumps don't work because they've been ignored, and so you you pull the plunger out. And if it's your own airplane, you listen and you realize, oh, I can I can actually hear the fuel sucking in. It's a syringe. It's what you're doing. You're pulling the plunger on a syringe. And then when you push it in, it, it should feel like it's pushing fuel. We just had a cardinal here, as a matter of fact, uh, Colleen, and having trouble getting it started. It turned out to be an a, a impulse coupling issue. But in the process, we discovered it was just pushing air. And uh, so we disconnected some of the lines to the engine. And once we got it working, it's like it was it was squirt avgas 20 or 30 feet. It was it was really cool. So most people will go to the, the accelerator pump, to the throttle, because the primer doesn't work. So if they're using the throttle, which I totally agree with Mike, it's, it's the wrong place to put the fuel. Typically, the carburetor is mounted vertically. So you have this stream of avgas that goes straight up, and then it comes straight back down. And if you have the throttle plate open, if the throttle's forward, then all the fuel puddles in the carburetor heat air box that's right below the carburetor. And it's definitely a fire hazard or it just runs out on the ground. It's not doing you any good. So, but that's what they're doing. And they're doing it probably because the primer doesn't work in almost every airplane they get in. So someone said, oh, we'll do this, it'll work. Since we're all mechanics here, we would suggest make the primer work and use it just as you're suggesting doing. That's that's exactly how it should be done. And, and making the primer work normally just involves replacing some o-rings right that's what makes them go bad and so it's not a big deal to do that or unclogging they're, they're not really injectors or little nozzle little ports yeah and unscrew those and make sure that when you run the plunger that avgas in quantity squirts out through all two three four five or six of them and not all engines if you have a four-cylinder engine it may only prime two or three or maybe all four but that depends on the airplane so make sure that they're all actually working. And you'd be amazed. It'll probably start just like the POH says it's supposed to. Yeah, I've always flown a fuel-injected engine, so I haven't had to mess with primers. But I, I read the Sacramento Sky Ranch advice on troubleshooting starting an engine. And he mentioned those ports, the primer ports. He said they often get clogged. He said they're right next to the intake valve. Yep. And um, they can get coked up. So people don't um, clean those, in, those um, primer ports. He also said that if you so are doesn't going, the act, doesn't the active priming clean them? Apparently, Not if you don't use it enough, yeah, or yeah. It, it can get clogged up. Also, the pumping of the throttle it, it throws um, fuel, as Mike said, into the air box. And if you if you are cranking while you're doing that, the engine will possibly pull the fuel up. That's what you want. But if you just pump the throttle prior to cranking, it's really not going to move because the fuel is going to just seep back down. Yeah. So that throttle pumping has to happen while you're cranking the engine, if yeah. you're resorting to that. And that's, it's still, that's just really a bad way to do it. It is dangerous. It, it truly, it's not one of those once in a bazillion times you'll have a fire. It'll be way more frequently than that. And it's just, it's just not the right way to start it. That That is what I've observed is the the pumping. And I think it is, doused with a, a whole heaping of impatience that the person has. Yes. I think they have to do something immediately. Like if it hasn't yeah. you know, started immediately. Just trying so everything. You're, you're just moving everything in the cockpit. You can't because right. the, yeah. the primer didn't work because it's broken. And so you're trying whatever you can yeah. do because you're 
sitting there and all your friends are sitting in the back mm-hmm. watching you, right? I've, I've watched guys in like Columbia's and Cirrus and 210's and they'll, they'll be starting the engine and they're moving the throttle back and forth. And I just, yeah, I, I try not to be snarky, but sometimes it just comes out. It's like, why is it exactly you're doing that? This, well, it, it makes well, it start better. Nathan will appreciate this. This is a this is proof of what's called the law of primacy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you? I've seen old cars where you pump the gas pedal when you're trying well, to start it. It's Isn't a carburetor. Accelerator pump? Yeah. Same thing. But the carburetor's mounted on top of the engine. And so when you do that, the fuel yeah, goes down ball, into ball, the ball, engine. Details, into details. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but people are trying to start their planes like they're trying to start their cars, right? It's, it's, old this, people. This old, sort of reminds people. me of, of something that happened years ago. I was at some airport up in Northern California, and this this pilot calls me over, and, and it's, he, he recognized me. He says, your name P, aren't you? And I said, yeah. He said, he said I can't get my... Cherokee 180 started. Could you could you help me figure out what's wrong? I said, sure. Why don't you go try to start it, and I'll stand out here and see what can be seen. So he starts cranking the engine, cranking the engine, and you can see his shoulders moving. He's doing all sorts of pilot stuff in the cockpit. <laughs> I give him a kind of a cut sign, and he stops and opens the door. I said, I said, well, it's not a fuel problem. And he, said, how, how do you know that? I said. Look on the ground under the airplane. There's this big puddle of gas running out the low point drain. So it was yeah. probably a good thing it didn't start because it probably right. would have ignited that puddle. Push the airplane away from the puddle and try over. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, we, we love taking care of uh, old wives' tales. So um, I yes. think we tackled a couple here, Nathan. That was. So you use the primer and, and, and try to prime and start or prime and crank simultaneously if you can i will go into the world now armed with the backing of ask right. the <laughs> that to, to, right. to do it this way it, it may it may require both hands and one prehensile foot but uh, <laughs> and fix the primer <laughs> i gotta think about the foot thing there mm. oh <laughs> thank you all thank you very much okay yeah. thanks, thanks for calling in thanks, thanks for nathan. calling nathan nice to meet you thanks. Our last question is from Eric, who wants us to clear up a question about smoking and piston engines. Go ahead, Eric. Yeah. Uh, so I'm out here in the, the great Pacific Northwest, and and we do a lot of flying. And over the past years, we've had a number of wildfires. And one club that I belong to, the, uh, the head AMP said, hey, they're smoking the air. We're grounding the planes. And <laughs> so... Uh, now I have my own plane, actually, uh, also under uh, contract for a cozy now. And so I, I'm just really curious about the effect of wildfire smoke and the internal combustion. Well, I've flown my plane through fires in the past. Um, smoke can get pretty high in California. Actually, I was just flying... <laughs> This past week, and there was a, a smoke layer. We have a fire in Mexico right now. Mm-hmm. I'm in San Diego. And as I passed through the layer, I was like, oh, I can smell this. This is definitely smoke. You know, I didn't realize it was that thick, but it is. But I have flown through smoke. The, the three things I notice, I do see it. If it's extensive, I see it in my uh, oil analysis. I can see that I've got dirt in my oil. That's basically what smoke is. It's carbon, right? It's burned mm-hmm. material. Uh, my air filter gets dirty. It looks brownish orange. So it's stopping some of that stuff, but not all of it. Uh, and the third thing is I see it all over the leading edges of my plane. It's kind of an oily, yeah. brownish looking. And so it, it kind of makes your whole airplane dirty. So if you want that in your engine, go fly in some smoke. Sometimes you just can't avoid it. I mean, literally climbing through, you know, to get anywhere in California, sometimes you're just going to be going through some of the stuff. It's hard to get high enough to get over it, depending on what the uh, the air is doing. Mm-hmm. So, Colleen, you confused me with something you said, which is that you could could see it in your oil analysis. What is it that you're seeing in your oil I, analysis? I think it's heightened um, silicone. Well, it's just dirt. Well, but I I don't think uh, smoke has silicon in it. Dirt does, but but smoke I don't think has 
smoke is on what's burning it's a wood product but i assume i assume you're talking about wood fires i i think that um well i assumed that when you have a big fire event it's it's throwing a lot of stuff into the air it's creating a lot of updraft and swirls and so you might have dirt in the air in general yeah Mm. that's what i assume interesting so in I live in part of the world where everything is green. When we have a drought, it's just not as deep a green. You know, it's that's that's about as bad as it gets. So it never, yeah, it's a light green instead of a dark green. So when Colleen, when you're when you're flying, to, as Eric is asking about, does it ever occur to you that maybe I won't fly today, other than it being IFR because of the smoke? You you still go? No. But and and typically where there's a smoke, where there's a lot of smoke, there's a TFR. Like a lot of times oh. the Sierras are burning and the smoke is, is flowing over into the Owens Valley. And sometimes you're between layers or you have to go punch through a certain area where there's a streamer of smoke. But you can choose hmm. to fly on the upwind side of the Sierras and fly, you know, the California Central Valley where you're not going to be in the smoke, but it's a longer trip. So sometimes I try to make trade-off choices to stay out of it, but sometimes you just can't avoid it. Do you ever notice any, when you're flying through the smoke, do you notice any performance change? Nothing. No, it gets stinky in the cockpit. That's also unpleasant. Other other than needing to change the induction air filter more often, I don't think that flying through smoke is going to do any damage to the engine. What will do damage to the engine, and uh, we haven't dealt with this uh, in a while, is uh, is flying through volcanic ash. That's very, very abrasive and, and quite harmful. But uh, that's a that's that's a whole different, especially your turbine engine. Issue. Yeah, yeah. So we we have that risk up here in the Pacific Northwest too. <laughs> yeah, but it's been a yeah. while. <laughs> yeah. I I was once coming back from uh, Northern California down the Owens Valley and it was nighttime and I was crossing the San Gabriel's coming into the LA area and there were fires down at the foot of the hills there, um, like near Cable Airport. And I remember flying over it and thinking, wow, look at all the flames down there. Look at all the fire trucks down there. And then I hit all the turbulence from the fire. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. And I had my great Dane in the back of the plane and she starts getting all agitated. We're getting tossed around. It smells like smoke. And I'm like, what an idiot. I just flew over this area. <laughs> Nowadays we have four flight and you can see TFR as it possibly was a TFR. I was at night, but I just remember thinking I was all safe up here looking down at the fire. And then I realized, no, the fire goes up and it's bad. And stinky. Oh, the one, the one thing I was going to point out is um, firefighting aircraft fly through fires all the time. We see those wonderful yeah. videos of them. And, it, and the, most of them are turboprops, but it would be really interesting to see what their preventative maintenance or cleaning or what they do. Yeah, they probably have to have, you know, frequent uh, blade washes, washes and yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah, I would think so. Yeah. yeah. When the when the wildfires get bad here, uh, the entire Puget Sound is just covered mm. uh, when, when there's mm. when there's uh, wildfires up in B.C. So the, the weather patterns bring it down and just blankets the Puget Sound. So the TFRs are still isolated over the actual fires, but we're getting the result of it. Yeah. So uh, sounds to me like the biggest concern is suddenly going IFR. Yeah. Well, well I, I mean, got to thinking, you know, you don't, you don't, you know, you're not going to sit and breathe it. So if you, if it's not good for you to breathe, how can it be good for the engine to breathe? Hmm. You have different yeah. criteria. Yeah. <laughs> I think if you feel safe enough flying in it and breathing what you're flying in, the engine sounds like it's going to be perfectly okay. Yeah. The engine doesn't have alveoli that gets plugged up. <laughs> but we we have had um, fire impacts on the air races each year. And last year we had, or two years ago, we had to cancel some races because the, the smoke drifted over the course and they have a limit on visibility. So. And then the crowd wasn't very happy either. It was just miserable being there. <laughs> but I think I think that the bottom line, Eric, is it seems like general consensus that it's not going to hurt your engine, just maybe a little unpleasant for you. Yeah. Well, thanks for entertaining my question. <laughs> good question. It was a good one. Yeah. Thanks. I'd never thought through that. Well, we made it through another podcast. What did we get right? We're not perfect, so what did we get wrong? You can always count on our listeners to let us know. 
Keep sending us those tricky questions to stump us. We absolutely love to hear from you. You can email your questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. We'll see you. Bye, everybody. Bye.